the historian David Wooten wrote, for 2,400 years, patients believed that doctors were doing good. For 2,300 years, they were wrong. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we will be exploring the historical foibles of doctors with author Nathan Belofsky, author of Strange Medicine. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What an amazingly researched book this is. And I'm just kind of curious how you found all the archival stuff from the Middle Ages and the Babylonians, etc. Well, I'll tell you, um, I spent an awful lot of time in medical libraries. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to live in New York City, and I especially spent a lot of time at New York's Academy of Medicine, which has rare books and a huge collection of archival matters, um, including old medical periodicals going back hundreds of years. So that was just a wonderful resource that I could use. And you even wrote in one of the parts that there were books that were found in human skin? Correct. That became sort of a hobby for doctors uh, in the 1800s. Um, A lot of doctors, including dermatologists, but not just dermatologists, um, they were very proud of their collections of books bound in human skin. Um, There were clubs devoted to it. Some medical schools had clubs devoted to it. It's just one of those um, sort of sidelines, strange sidelines that I cover in the book. And of course, there's lots of other strangeness in the book. That was just one of uh, the stranger hobbies that doctors uh, engaged in at the time. So this is a kind of a great kind of summer read, great beach read, because it's got all these little stories, and we're just going to kind of hit on some of them. So kind of starting way back, what were some of the ancient practices that kind of stood out to you that the Babylonians and maybe the Greeks and Romans did? Sure. Um, Well, the book starts, I divided the book into four sections. The first one is the ancients, um, and I start with the Babylonians. um, And Babylonian medicine was, uh, as you might expect, very crude. Um, Often they would um, put a sick patient in the public square, and everyone who walked by was obligated to take a look at the sick patient. And if they had had a similar illness, it was their duty to come forward and tell and explain what their experiences were, hoping that um, their experiences could help that person uh, with a cure. Um, They had all sorts of magical potions. For example, if they had, uh, I think I mentioned if someone had a toothache, uh, they would rub a dead skull for seven times and then do certain prayers and that would cure the toothache, that sort of thing. But of course it was very crude and probably it didn't make much of a difference one way or the other. The ancient Greeks, uh, Hippocrates was a, a genius, um, and he's sort of a hero of mine because he, he combined his intellectual brilliance with a real hands-on approach, which wasn't always the case um, years later with doctors. That was one of medicine's problems. But um, Hippocrates talked about some of the ancient Greek medical procedures. For example, when someone had a hunchback, they would throw them off a building, hoping that the jolt of the trauma would straighten their back. That was a a bit extreme. Now, the ancient Romans, 
their approach to medicine was they simply didn't like doctors, and um, they didn't really believe in medicine very much. Um, They believed in the curative powers of cabbage and that sort of thing, but they just basically thought that uh, people should just, uh, you know, that men should be men, and, you know, only the, the, the weakest of men would actually even go to a doctor. The ancient Egyptians, they had the physician of the belly, uh, and when someone had, for example, gout, they would make the person stand on electric eels. Um, and for all we know, maybe that that helped. <laughs> you know, there are some sort of similar treatments uh, today using electricity. Then uh, the second part of the book, um, I talk about the Middle Ages, and um, that's where things get a little bit strange. Um, Middle-aged doctors um, thought people had toothworms in their teeth and that that caused dental problems. So they would put candles in their patient's mouth to burn out these invisible toothworms. Uh, Torture was very big in the Middle Ages. Uh, So there are all sorts of remedies for torture victims. Uh, They would take a torture victim and, and wrap them in the skin of a recently flayed horse, for example. Uh, Middle-aged doctors also, at least in Europe, by statute, were forced to carry horoscopes in their medical bags. They would actually be arrested if they didn't have current and very accurate horoscopes. They would perform surgeries uh, according to the position of the planets, and if they didn't, they would be punished for it. I also describe uh, medieval surgeries, and sometimes they did good, and sometimes they they did not. Um, and you can imagine they weren't very pleasant affairs without anesthesia. I give a few examples uh, of um, medieval surgeries um, written by the doctors who perform them, and a typical surgery might be um, strapping a, a patient to a, a large rock or, or a table and then having several strong men also hold him down or, or sit, sit on him and spectators would gather. And it wasn't unusual for either the assistants or the spectators to faint during the surgery. And in fact, one doctor, Dr. Henry de Monville, was maybe the greatest of the medieval surgeons wrote that sometimes he actually made more money from treating people who had fainted at the surgery, say spectators who had hit their head, um, than treating the actual patient. And it also wasn't unusual for um, assistants to just simply run away during the course of the surgery. Another medieval surgeon writes that when his assistants ran away, he enlisted the services of his wife and um, his young son as well, and completed the surgery. All in all, not a a very pleasant affair. Uh, The the third chapter of the book is about the Renaissance, and um, you would think um, in the face of all the great advances made uh, with ideas and art and literature and architecture, you would think that medicine would have advanced, uh, but in fact it didn't. Renaissance medicine was no better than medieval medicine or even Greek medicine. And maybe the best example I could give of Renaissance medicine, sort of state-of-the-art 
Renaissance medicine is the medical treatment given to King Charles II in 1685. Now, um, you can imagine he got the very best of medical treatment, and he woke up one morning feeling sick. So his barber took a, a pint and a half of blood from him, and when that didn't help, then they fed him antimony, which is a toxic, heavy metal. Then they applied blistering agents to his scalp. That was supposed to drive the bad humors in his uh, body downward. And then they applied pigeon droppings to the soles of his feet. That was supposed to attract these bad humors again downwards towards his feet. After that, they poked him with a red-hot poker. And then they um, made him swallow ooze from a skull of a person who had recently died a most violent death. And finally, they gave him crushed stones that were found in the intestine of a goat. Uh, that constituted state-of-the-art treatment during the Renaissance. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, King Charles died. It's hard to believe he didn't get better. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, John Russell, and we're speaking with author Nathan Bolofsky about his book, Strange Medicine. The, the last uh, section of the book, and... and um, the longest section, and maybe my favorite, is uh, discusses uh, the heroic age of medicine. And most historians put that at roughly 1780 to 1850. And uh, I find it the most fascinating part of medical history because uh, when you read some of the ideas and procedures, you realize that this was probably medicine's lowest point. Um, I think you could make a reasonable argument that someone treated during medicine's heroic age, say, say Abraham Lincoln, for example, probably received worse treatment than someone who was being treated by Hippocrates or one of his Greek colleagues 2,000 years before. My favorite story was the George Washington story, if you could share that one. Oh, yes. Uh, George Washington... Uh, woke up one morning feeling sick, and he summoned his doctors. And, of course, George Washington had access to some of the finest doctors in the land, and I believe three of them came to his homestead immediately. And the doctors, uh, between the three of them, drained from him, I believe it was about 100, was it 116 ounces of blood um, in the course of several hours, uh, one doctor would drain a certain amount of blood, and then another doctor would drain more blood, and then the third doctor drained even more blood. Now, if you think of um, 100, I believe it was over 100 ounces, that's, say, six pints of, of blood, and uh, George Washington had been complaining of a, uh, a severe sore throat, uh, but by the time the blood had been drained from him, um, he died. And that was typical of medical treatment during medicine's heroic age. Um, there was no real uh, theoretical or practical basis behind bloodletting. No one had a good theory about why it worked, um, and it didn't work, but doctors were so anxious to do something, so desperate to do something, 
that they engaged in practices like bloodletting without any idea of why they were doing it. In fact, you know, I always assumed before I started this book that bloodletting was sort of a relic of the Middle Ages, you know, along with bring out your dead and, and that sort of thing. But in fact, bloodletting and, and leeches and that sort of thing uh, flourished most during medicine's heroic age. Uh, to the extent um, doctors were using leeches so much that, that some doctors were afraid that leeches themselves would become extinct. There's a, an essay about the use of leeches, and we all know that, you know, maybe we've seen pictures. Um, I always thought, you know, you apply a leech to someone's, say, chest or arm and let it do its work with its little sharp teeth. But doctors of medicine's heroic age were actually using them internally. Sometimes they would take silk fishing line, tie it to a leash, um, lower it down a patient's throat, let it do its job sucking up all the blood, and then reel it back in like a fish. Other times, uh, and I have I document some medical journals and have some quotes from medical journals, um, particularly with women, doctors would insert leeches into their uh, internal parts, and sometimes these leeches would actually get lost inside a woman. And I cite journal articles and textbooks where doctors um, confront the problem of what to do when these leeches get lost inside a woman. Uh, mostly they said that women were acting hysterically over you know, something that wasn't such a big deal to them. And they said they would say that, well, the leech will eventually work its way out, maybe in a few days. That was very typical of uh, medicine during uh, medicine's heroic age. It was never really woman-centric, it sounded like. The last, the last story I want to hit on is a more modern story, which I think is pretty funny, is the photoscopes that were in shoe stores. Can you talk about that story? This is something that occurred before World War II. Before photoscopes, people used to walk into a shoe store and be fitted for shoes, much the way we are now. But with doctors eager to exploit the technology, x-rays had been invented, and some medical doctors had the bright idea of using them to help people uh, fit shoes. They said that, well, instead of just having a salesman help you, you know, put a shoe on, and if it didn't fit, well, we'll try another shoe. Uh, they said that was too crude. Let's use these new scientific advances. So what they did is they uh, installed these large x-ray machines inside shoe stores. Uh, they were the size of, say, a small refrigerator. And people, especially children, loved these machines. They would stick their feet into the bottom of the machine, and they would press a button, and an x-ray would be taken of their foot. And supposedly with this x-ray of the bones of the foot, they would get a better fit. The problem was, of course, uh, the children would go put their feet in the fluoroscope or in the footoscope, and then they loved pressing that button. So they would press it again and again. And there were even windows in the machine so they could see their feet being x-rayed. It was like a game. And, you know, the more they pressed that button and the more x-rays they were exposed to, the more fun they had. 
And then finally, during World War II and its aftermath, uh, when people started becoming aware of the dangers of radiation, finally doctors realized, well, maybe it's not such a good idea to expose uh, children and, uh, and even the salesmen in the shoe store um, to all this radiation. Uh, so these days, when you go into a shoe store, uh, chances are you're not going to be putting your, your foot into an X-ray machine. We do it the old-fashioned way. I think this is a really fun, terrific book, and I, and I think anyone who has any interest in medicine, any interest in history, would love this book. I'd like to thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.